Thank you, Lee. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and make your way to Ephesians chapter 5. And as you do so, we're going to have to steal a line from one of uh, Eden's favorite songs right now. And it's a song that some of you will recognize from a movie from the 70s. But the, the song goes like this, eastbound and down, loaded up and trucking. We're going to do what they say can't be done. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm east down, watch old bandit run, right? That's us today. We have got a long way to go. We've got a short time to get there. So we've got to jump in real and just hit the ground running uh, this morning. Because as we continue trekking through the book of Ephesians, where we find ourselves today is where it talks about marriage. And what happens a lot of times is people just camp out on two words from, from what Lee read just a second ago. And those two words are submission and then head or headship. Now, I want everybody to listen real close to me. Those words are not meaningless. Okay, they, they mean something. Paul put them in their own purpose. But they are not the lens through which we are to see marriage. There's a bigger and I think more obvious lens that we sometimes miss because we focus so much on the distinctions. And so part of what I want to do this morning is is maybe help you see that lens better or maybe show you that lens for the first time. And so the way we're going to do that is we're going to, we're going to build a, a sentence together. So that's, the way that, that's why your notes kind of look the way they do with kind of uh, filling the blanks along the way. And then I gave you room underneath to take notes. But we're going to build that sentence together. Because what I want to try to do is like if, if you were going to take this passage, everything that it says there in verses 22 through 33, and you were going to try to encapsulate it in one sentence, like the big idea of the text... That's what we're going to try to do. That's what we're going to try to build is one sentence that that summarizes Paul's thoughts from this passage. And so that's what we're going to build towards. And so you can see that it begins there with a spirit-filled marriage. And so before we start building the sentence, we need to talk about those three words. Spirit-filled and then marriage. And so look at verse 15 with me. We're going to go back a little bit. Go up to verse 15 before where Lee read. Let's talk first about kind of the spirit-filled aspects of this. So it says, look carefully then how you walk. Now walk has been a big word ever since we got to chapter 4. Chapters 1 through 3 were all about who we are in Christ. Once we got to chapter 4, it was all about how we live that out in Christ. And he says, chapter 4, verse 1 Walk, therefore, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And then that word drives all throughout the rest of the chapter. So we're to walk in love. We're to walk in light. Here we are to walk carefully. All right? And keep going with me. Look carefully, then, how you are to walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so last week we talked about, you know, walk not in foolishness, walk in wisdom. Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so we talked last week, walk not in debauchery, but walk in the Spirit. That's kind of the highlight of this call to walk in a manner worthy. We are to walk in the Spirit. And then Paul gives four participles to describe what walking in the Spirit looks like. So look at it with me. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. 
giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then finally, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so that, like what happens now is that last participle, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, that's going to be the driver for the next several weeks. And what happens now is Paul begins fleshing out what that submission looks like in various contexts, various aspects. So this week, he starts with what it looks like in marriage. Next week, or chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we're going to see how he describes that working out in parenting. And it's different. And then the next week, we're going to see how that works out in employer and employee relationships. And it's different as well. And so verse 21 sorry, hopefully I got it. Verse 21 is huge to keep in mind as as a heading across all of this. We are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so that's what we mean when we kind of talk about, you know, spirit-filled, that we are to walk in the spirit. One of the ways we walk in the spirit is by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ And so again, that's kind of the headline across the next several passages of Scripture. So that's Spirit-filled. We are to walk in the Spirit, submitting to one another in Christ. Marriage. What is marriage? How do we define marriage? And when when I say marriage, we're talking about how the Bible would define marriage. How God would define marriage, not how the world would define it. The world, it's, in today's age, something's meant, meant one thing for 2,000 years. And now, all of a sudden, it means something completely else, completely different. And so, how would God define marriage, not the world? And the way God would d- define marriage, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote John Stott, because I think he summarizes it really well. Here's how he defines marriage. <clears throat> marriage is an exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman ordained and sealed by God, preceded by the leaving of parents, consummated in sexual union, issuing in a permanent, mutually supportive partnership, and typically crowned with the gift of children. That's what marriage is. This is how the Bible would define it. Marriage is an exclusive heterosexual covenant between one man and one woman, ordained and sealed by God, preceded by the leaving of parents, consummated in sexual union, issuing in a permanent mutually supportive partnership, and typically crowned with the gift of children. And so for today, I'm just going to state that and leave it out there. In previous sermons, I have explained that and, 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 and argued for that from the Bible. You can go to sermons we've done through the book of Genesis uh, and elsewhere, I, <clears throat> a series we did on marriage where I defined marriage and argued from Scripture on what it was. And it was a great marriage. It was a great sermon. Thanks for the little echo I got back there in the, in the back. <clears throat> it was a good day. But that's God's definition, and it's not up for debate. God defines marriage. He created it. He has the right to define it as He wishes, and that is how He defined it on purpose for good reasons. And so the world may fool around with the definition, but that's not actual marriage. This is what God says marriage is. And so with that prep work done, spirit-filled marriage, now let's start building our sentence together, all right? And so a spirit-filled marriage, number one, displays the beauty of the gospel. 
displays the beauty of the gospel. And those words are specifically chosen. And I mean, that's what, that's what Paul is saying a spirit-filled marriage does here. That's why there's so much in here about Christ and the church. It displays the beauty of the gospel. Now, we need to nuance a couple of things, all right? And nuance is something I think culturally we all need to, like, rediscover. Nuancing statements so that we won't just lump sum everybody. Nuance. So, two aspects I want to nuance out of, out of this. And the first one is this. In saying that a spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel, I am not saying that this is... That this display is like the reason God created marriage back in Genesis 1 and 2. It plays into that. But the reason God created marriage is because he's a good God. He's a kind God. He is gracious. And he said it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And so he created it for our good and for our happiness And as a blessing to men and women for companionship for those who were called to marriage. He created it so that we could fulfill the created created mandate, the creation mandate. To be fruitful, to fill the earth and subdue it and to rule over creation together. And somebody's like, well, Joe, what about, I, 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 thought he, I thought he created it to make us holy, not necessarily happy. Well, we need to remember, when was marriage created? If you know your Bible, or if you don't, I'll teach you. The uh, marriage was created pre-fall. It was before sin and death ever entered the world. So Adam and Eve did not need to be made holy. They already were. Right? So it's, it's not, you know, that they needed to be made holy. This is pre-fall. They were already righteous. And so he created it not to make them holy. He created it to make them happy. He created it for their good. Now, of course, since the fall, God absolutely uses marriage for our sanctification. Yes. But just as he uses all circumstances that he places us in for our sanctification. Right? So it's not like, well, you've got to be married to be sanctified. No. That's false. God uses it, but that's not like why it exists. And so our marriages, yes, they do resemble Christ's union with the church, but that isn't like the only reason why he instituted marriage. He instituted it because he's good and kind and that we could fulfill the creation mandate. So that's nuance number one. Nuance number two, though, are, are the words that I chose there or, or supplied to you there. The sentence we, we were building says, A spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel. It does not say, I did not say, it displays the gospel. There's a difference there in, in saying the beauty of the gospel versus the gospel. That is an important distinction. Because when marriage is emphasized as living out a picture of the gospel... It tends toward making marriage and family into idols. And so as one lady put it, when we teach that gender and gender roles are inseparable from the gospel, we are going beyond the analogy that Paul is trying to use. Now, gender and gender roles are hugely important. It's all through Scripture. 
but where we yoke them to the gospel, that's not appropriate. When we do that, we, you know, conflate the actual gospel and and present a truncated understanding of what Christ actually accomplished for believers through his death and resurrection. And so again, a spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel. Okay, we've nuanced the heck out of that. So now let's get going. Somebody's like, well, how? How? You say it does that. How does it do that? Well, that's number two and three in your notes. So let me go ahead and give you both and then we'll make our way through it. A spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel through, number two, a husband and wife's unity. A husband and wife's unity and their sacrificial service. A spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel through a husband and wife's unity and their sacrificial service. And friends, this is what I think, particularly that unity part, this is what I think is the like, more obvious lens through which we should see marriage, first of all. That, that a husband and wife's unity displays the gospel. Because if you remember Ephesians, like, what is it all about? It is all about the fact that we are now in Christ. It's on the cover of your bulletins. That's the name of the entire series. And we are in Christ. We've been made one with Him. And that is what marriage so wonderfully pictures. Look at verse 31 again. Paul's quoting here from Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's literal and metaphorical. And then immediately, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That idea of unity. That idea of oneness. And so the overarching, absolutely obvious main point that marriage displays to us about the beauty of the gospel is that we are united with Christ. What happens so often when people sometimes teach on marriage is that they focus on like the difference between husbands and wives. But what should leap off at the page at us first, not that there aren't differences, we'll get to that in a minute, but what should leap off the page at us first is that we have been made one. There's unity there. And our oneness in Christ supersedes our differences. We're a team. In marriage, you are a team. And so this past uh, weekend, we went down to Georgia to visit my, my family recovering from, um, you know, recovering from an accident that they had. And we were prepar- preparing to leave yesterday, and uh, Eden asked Sarah a question about something, and Sarah couldn't hear her, so I answered for her. And she said, not you, Dad, Mom. And then I said, well, honey, we are, we're a team, and so... If you ask mom a question, I can answer. And if you ask mom a question, wait, yeah. And if you ask me a question, mom can answer. And we're a team. And, and she said, you're not a team. And, and I said, we're not? Well, what are we? And she says, you're human. <laughs> but husbands and wives, I mean, I was trying to teach her. Husbands and wives are teams. You, you, 
you have been made one. And this is what the church now has with Christ. We've been made one. We've been united with Him. We are now in Christ. We have union with Him. And so let that be the first lens through which you see marriage. It's the union of two people, and that union displays the beauty of the gospel. Now, that unity does not mean uniformity, right? We're about to get into some distinctions here between husband and and wife and between Christ and the church. But it starts there with unity. And so for those of you who are married, want to be married... Uh, or, or we're going to speak into people's lives about marriage, anything like that, the first thing you need to understand about marriage, the lens you need to see, first thing is you, a married couple, is united in Christ. You have been united to your spouse. The two have become one. You left, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One guy described it like this, and I love his emphasis on total. Listen to this. Marriage is a total commitment of a total sharing of the total person with another person until death. Wayne Mack describes it like this. God's intention is that when two people get married, they should share everything. Their bodies, their possessions, Their insights, their ideas, their abilities, their problems, their success, their sufferings, their failures, everything. They are a team and whatever each of them does must be for the sake of the other person. Each person must be as concerned about the other person's needs as he or she is about their own. And so the idea here is total intimacy, total unity. And husbands and wives, this is the starting point for your marriages. The starting point is your commonality, your unity, not your distinctions. But again, total unity doesn't mean total uniformity, right? It doesn't mean sameness. And it doesn't mean sameness in terms of like what, uh, in terms of opinions. And so, like, husbands, you don't think for your wives. God gave her a brain. So you may differ on politics. You may differ on what sports team you should pull for. You may differ o- over different things. God gave her a brain. You don't think for her. Also, she doesn't think for you. But you talk together, you work together, you are a team, you are united. And when we make our unity the focal point of marriage, we see our similarities much more brightly than we see our differences. And we can remember that we're meant to be side-by-side allies instead of face-to-face opponents. And so a spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel through a husband and wife's unity. And then now, number three, sacrificial service. Sacrificial service. And this is where we get into some of the distinctions with words like submission and headship. 
But if we will first focus on the idea of sacrificial service to, to one another, one another's are all over Scripture, right? If we'll focus on sacrificial service to one another, then those things, submission, headship, they will fall into place much more smoothly and display the beauty of the gospel. Because the gospel is all about sacrificial service. I mean, obviously we recognize that Christ served the church by sacrificing himself on the cross in our place for our sins so that we could be forgiven and have a relationship with him, be adopted into his family. But also the church, obviously, we are to serve Christ. We are to submit to his reign and his rule and we are to follow him and that takes sacrifice. It means not doing things we might prefer to do because we're called to serve him. And so the idea of sacrificial service goes both ways. And so when we focus on service, husbands will be encouraged to love their wives sacrificially and to put their wives' needs before their own like Christ did with the church. And wives will be encouraged to submit to their husbands and to love and respect them by putting their husbands' needs first. And those two things look a whole lot in common. One putting needs first, other one putting needs first. And if both parties do this, if both parties do this, focusing on the spouse's needs, not their own, it will discourage people from maybe on one hand trying to manipulate and on the other hand maybe trying to dominate. There will be a beauty in that. There will be a caring for the other is more important than themselves in that. And so getting specific then, the the passage treats wives, then, then talks about husbands, so we're going to take it in that order. Wives are called to, verse 22, submit to their own husbands. Now, literally, the word submit is not in this, it's not in verse 22. It's in verse 21, and it's supplied into verse 22. So literally, it reads like this, verse 21, because again, that's the heading over everything. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands. And so it's supplied in there, but it, it's in there, and it's, all, it's in other places in Scripture as well. So it's a legit word, it's a legit command. And so wives are called to submit to their husbands. Now, again, one of nuance, nuance is important. A couple of things. One, they are not called to submit to their husbands because they are women and therefore supposed to be more submissive, more responsive. No, no, no. That's an understanding. That's that's patriarchal. That's not in the Bible. Wives are called to submit to their husbands, not to men. Women aren't called to submit to men. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. And women are called to submit to, as, and men are also called to submit to the elders. So those are the two places in Scripture where a, a, a woman would be called to submit to a man. Marriage and then the church. That's it. But a wife's submission to her husband here, okay, is a voluntary thing. It is a voluntary submission of an equal. Out of respect for her husband and in recognition that her ultimate Lord is Christ. Again, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And somebody says, well, what about about where it says in everything? 
Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I think you know that doesn't mean literally everything. Like you're supposed to be a barking, you know, drill sergeant saying, do this, do that. If that's you, you don't understand love and you probably don't trust Christ. Because Christ died for his bride. And so I think, verse, I, th- I think Colossians, the parallel uh, p- passage in Colossians is really helpful in trying to understand this everything. So in Colossians chapter 3, the way it reads is this. There it says, wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Which has the implication that there is a kind of submission that is not fitting in the Lord. And that's where submission equals obedience to an authoritative, overbearing ogre or abuser, physical or verbal. That is not what God is talking about here. That is sin. The word obedience, like when you think about submission and obedience, the word obedience is reserved for the next two sections where he talks about submission. Parents... Children are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then also employers and employees. There it uses the word obedience. Here it uses the word submission. Why? Because you're first of all a team. You are united. And the husband is to be the team captain, yes. But biblical submission has a cooperative element to it. Again, it's not just the husband firing off orders and the wife is to do them. It's that the wife is to have a spirit of humility and submission. Even as the husband is called to have a spirit of dying to self. And so picked on the women a little bit. Now picked on wives a little bit. Now let's pick on husbands a little bit. In fact, we're going to pick on husbands maybe a little bit more because if you look at the passage, wives get three verses, husbands get nine verses that means like we need to hear it probably a little bit more to get it through our thick craniums and so men husbands are called to right there 25 love your wives and nowhere in scripture where you ever find where it says that love equals taking advantage of someone That love equals domineering over someone. You don't find that in Scripture where where love equals putting others down so that you can elevate yourself. You never find that in the Bible. Further, he describes it. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Unless we misunderstand, know that, like, and then it talks about headship and everything. Unless we misunderstand this, the, the headship that the husband has, it is not just because he's male. And it's not just because he's, like, a natural leader. He may not be. He may not be a natural leader, but still he is to lead and love and serve. And he never lords it over. He never attempts to enforce submission now, he respects his wife, he respects her insights, he respects her abilities, even as he is head. And again, it's all about sacrificial service on both parties, both spouses. And so husbands, your love, here we go, your, your love is to be a Golgotha-like love. 
And so Christ was scourged, right? He had nails driven through his hands and his feet. He had a crown of thorns crushed down into his head. He had a spear driven into his side. All because he loved his bride, the church. He gave himself up for her. Husbands, your love is to be a sacrificial, foot-washing kind of love. Where you take the lowliest. Where you t- I mean, that is a servant's role. Christ's headship, He is authority, right? But it, His headship is our model. He came to serve, not be served. Though He was the head. And so men, marriage is a call to die. That's what it means to love like Christ. Christ died. So it's dying to self. And that may involve dying to your schedule. What you want to do. It may even mean dying to good ambitions. And you don't do those so that you can help your wife flourish in her giftings and in her abilities and in her talents and in her interests. It's a dying to self. It means giving yourself away for the good of your bride. And you should seek also as husband to help her grow in Christ. That's part of what verses 25 and 26 are all about. Look at it. Husbands, love your wives. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, I want to make sure you understand. Husbands, you are not your spouse's Christ. You are not priest, you are not mediator, you are not her savior. She has one savior, his name is Jesus. But you are to help her grow in her savior and in your savior. You should love your bride in a way that helps her grow in likeness to Christ. And so here's the question, husbands, you need to answer. Is your wife more like Christ because... She's married to you. Or is she like Christ in spite of you? Is your wife more like Christ because of you? Or is she like Christ in spite of you? And listen, we're going to fail at times. I do all the time. Well, a lot of times my wife's like Christ in spite of me. And I'm thankful to have a wife who will call me on the carpet sometimes. That, I mean, again, we're, we are, marriage does not exist for the sole purpose of sanctifying one another. But if you are married, God is going to work in that and we need to receive one another's insights, inputs, conversations, pushbacks. That is part of what it means to be a team. And so putting these ideas of submission and headship together, it's really like a, a, a well done, it's really like a slow, a slow dance by people who have rhythm. You've seen people who don't have rhythm. And they try to slow dance, right? It's like a train wreck. But people who do have rhythm, it's a beautiful thing. 
And so what you have is you have one person gently leading, and you have one person following. You have one person who initiates, you have another person who responds. Both are necessary for the dance to happen. And again, when both fulfill the roles properly, it's a beautiful thing. But it's all born out of this idea of sacrificial service, which displays the beauty of the gospel. And when you get right down to it, submission and headship actually have more in common than they do different. When it's understood properly in the context of Christ. Because what does it mean to submit? It means to give oneself up for somebody else. What does it mean to love? It's to give oneself up for somebody else. And so to submit is to put the will, here's the distinction, the will of the other ahead of your will. And to love is to put the needs of the other before your needs. And so those of you who are married, Sacrifice for one another. See yourself unified. That, that, is, that is where it begins. You, are, you, you have been made one flesh. It's not that your individual identities went away, but very much, there's not so much a Joe and so much a Sarah, there's a Joe Sarah. We are one. When you are single or you uh, are a widow or a widower, listen to me, you are absolutely complete in Christ. You do not need somebody else to make you whole in Christ. You are complete in Christ. When you become married, you are choosing to be incomplete without that other person. To become one. And so sacrifice for one another. Understand the unity that you have in Christ. Serve one another. Love one another. This is how we display the beauty of the gospel. And this is our calling and our responsibility. A spirit-filled marriage displays the beauty of the gospel through a husband and wife's unity and sacrificial service. And that's the lens that I think we need to begin to see marriage through. And it is a pathway back to finding joy in your marriage or improving that joy in your marriage as you recognize we are a team and there's a captain of the team just as there's a captain of the ship. And what does a captain of the ship do when things go bad? He goes down with the ship. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Let's pray. Father, help us with this. This doesn't come natural to us. We are selfish people. We are uh, self-preservationists. And we look out for, I mean, just the carnal person in us, the fleshly person in us. We are prone to look out for numero uno. But your call, both in the church and in marriage, is to look out for one another. To bear one another's burdens. 
to be there for one another, to hold one another up, to encourage one another, to love one another, to serve one another. And so, Father, bare minimum, help us to be to our spouses what we have pledged to be to other church members. Help us to remember that our spouse is not only our spouse, but also our brother or sister in Christ. And Father, remind us of the unity that we have in Christ, that you have called us to be one. And so, Father, in this time and in this moment, I know there's probably around this room people who are hurting because they've blown it so bad. Others are hurting because they've been hurt by a faulty understanding of marriage, or maybe not even a faulty understanding, but a faulty living it out. And so, Father, I pray for the one, the first, that you would bring proper conviction from the Holy Spirit that would lead to proper repentance and a proper understanding of forgiveness and the courage to now change. And for the others, Father, I pray that you would bring help and restoration, that they would first find their completeness in you, And that you would work, Lord, to heal them, to help them, and to look to the body of Christ to be the arms and feet, the hands and feet of Jesus to them. And that we might help and aid and bear burdens. For we are a family. The church is a family. And you are our Father. And so, Father, we pray for your help in these moments as we think and contemplate and remember the hope of the gospel that our marriages are to display the beauty of. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then all the things I talk about, you know, are, are, are so close to you but aren't yet true. And Jesus took your place on the cross, that He died in your place for your sins as your substitute. That is true, but it takes you saying yes to that to have that credited into your account. And so if you've never done that, then let me encourage you to do so. There's no magic words, there's no magic prayer, no magic incantation you say. It's just an attitude of the heart of recognizing your sin, repenting of that sin, and asking Jesus to save you and then seeking to follow Him for the rest of your life. Stumbling forward. And so if you've never done that and you'd like to talk about what that looks like, and I encourage you to hang around if you're here and you'd like to talk, I'll be around. Our elders will be around. And those of you who are watching on live stream, you can see contact information on the screen in front of you. And you can also go to our website and access email addresses so you can send an email to any of our elders. But if the words working in your heart, or you just need prayer about your marriage, or any of those things, we're here. Respond as the Lord leads. Let's stand.